Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. My name is Jack Rico, and welcome to episode 143 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. On today's episode, will Texas flip this year? <laughs> you know, Texans, Texans used to hate that, that question, and now they're kind of leaning into it. The Latino Vote. With the 2020 election right around the corner, political reporter Rafael Bernal from TheHill.com helps me break down if the Latino vote is a myth or if it will elect the next president of the United States. We also tackle the question that has been on so many people's minds as of late. Should Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez run for president in 2024? But before we get started, it's time I give you my weekly review of what's happening in Latinx pop culture in a segment I like to call... Jacked in. Let's begin with the top movie, TV, and music news of the week. Narcos Mexico has been renewed for a third season at Netflix. Eva Longoria is set to join Ice Cube in an untitled sci-fi movie for Universal Pictures. Giancarlos Canella joins Kevin Hart in Sony's Man from Toronto. Actress Sochil Gomez joins Benedict Cumberbatch in Doctor Strange 2. Bad Bunny, Carol G, and Mark Anthony to perform at the Latin Grammy Awards. Jennifer Lopez and Army Hammer are set to star in the action comedy Shotgun Wedding. Mario Lopez releases the first official trailer to the Save by the Bell reboot. And stage actress Doreen Montalvo dies at 56. And in tech and social media news, SiriusXM completes acquisition of podcast platform Stitcher. Apple One is now available to bundle Apple services into a single subscription. Sony's reportedly close to buying Crunchyroll for nearly $1 billion. The Oculus Quest 2 has been pre-ordered five times as much as the original. Google is bringing its own VPN to desktops. PlayStation CEO says VR won't be a meaningful part of gaming for years. And Netflix has raised the price on one of its most popular plan to $14, along with its premium tier to $18. <laughs> Rafael Bernal is a reporter for TheHill.com, a nonpartisan political website, and he joins us for the show right before the elections. Uh, Rafael, thank you so much for coming, man. We've been talking for quite some time on social media, on Twitter, and I finally get you on the show to talk a little bit about politics because, look, the other day I, I was watching MSNBC. I had not watched cable TV news. I, I cut the cord I, like like two years ago. Mostly because of this Trump thing, man. It's just everything started becoming politicized and I had enough of it. So I cut the cord this week. I wanted to kind of just go back on it again to see what's going on, how they're covering the anxiety levels that were coming out of the screen from the anchors, from the panelists, from reporters on the field. How anxious are you as a reporter what kind of anxiety are you seeing in your beat, in your newsroom, with your colleagues, with your friends? Where are you? How are you seeing this right now? Well, first of all, th thank you for having me. It's, it's you know, I listen to your podcast. I, I really enjoy it. And it's great to be on a podcast that's not about politics. Because to your question, second of all, yeah, I mean, anxiety is sort of off the charts right now, I think, across the board. I mean, among people who don't follow politics, 
clearly, you know, politics is is a source of anxiety for everyone. But you can imagine among people who follow politics, it's that much worse because we have to pay attention to this yeah. stuff. And, you know, like you, I'm a cord cutter. I, you know, about two years, about the same. Um, I, I get all my news from, you know, either, either print or online. I try to... You know, I, I try to keep video to things that you have to see on video. You know, somebody's speech, a debate, uh, you know, um, sadly, the, of course, the, uh, you know, videos of police abuse. You have to watch yeah. the video to understand the story. Uh, but in general, I think getting your news in writing and, you know, hopefully from nonpartisan sources, uh, it, it helps you sort of tone down that anxiety somewhat mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and really get to like the facts, you know, this happened. So-and-so said this, so-and-so said that uh, it follows whatever X, Y, and Z background. Uh, it, it lets you, lets you sort of take a step back. That said, you know, as what we began on the, the, the anxiety is off the charts because I think the stakes are just, so high in this election and you know things will be i th and i think voters do see this and definitely reporters see this and politicians see this whatever side you stand on you know that the results of this election are going to mean a very different reality for a lot mm -hmm. of people uh around the world and especially in the united states of course what has it been like to be a journalist covering politics the last four years <laughs> Uh, interesting. Um, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's you know, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, and, and, and I don't, I don't want to make a, a, a direct parallel, but, but I'm going to tell you a, an anecdote with, with that very strong caveat. Uh, my, my grandfather, he was a writer uh, and a diplomat, but early in his career, he was a reporter and he got sent by a Mexican newspaper to uh, to Germany in the 1930s. That is where I don't want to make a direct parallel, of course. But it was also a fascinating political time, um, and and I think that experience helped him in his writing, helped him in the in the way he saw the world, and and sort of I, I think one of looking forward as a as a positive thing. I think the people who've been covering this uh, for the for the last four years. Uh, we're going to have like, nothing's going to surprise us. Right. Like we're, we're going to be much better equipped as journalists to handle anything politically. And, mm -hmm. and I, I, you know, I might be stepping way ahead of myself here because who knows, you know, with the, with the surprises that 2020 has, has just hasn't stopped. Maybe, maybe I'm being way too optimistic here, but I really think it's, it's prepared a lot of reporters to, you know, keep their calm, uh, keep their powder dry. And one very clear example of that is the way 2016 was covered. You saw very unstable polls. The polls, like they, they moved around wildly. You know, you, you saw three to seven point changes in Hillary Clinton's popularity from one week to the other. Uh, that hasn't happened this year. I think people have been more prepared. Uh, journalists have been more prepared also to, to not make a scandal out of everything. Mm -hmm the headlines that were very sensational in 2016. I think we were all very uncomfortable with the work we were doing as journalists covering that election, sort of not keeping a cool head. In in that sense, if, if we do stay on this track as journalists and as newsreaders, 
we are a more mature democracy on both sides of the aisle. But but we I, I do see I do see a lot more maturity both in the coverage and in the reaction of news readers. Let's turn over to the Latino vote. You've been covering at the Hill, uh, the Hispanic beat uh, for Latino voters for a while. Um, we're the largest political voting block in the country with 32 million. Yet 15 million of those eligible voters don't vote. And it was recently that Voto Latino had an August poll that said like 60% of those 32 million weren't going to vote and 12% are still undecided. That's 72% of Latinos that aren't going to vote. But people talk about this huge Latino vote ads. You know, I, how many times have I heard Jorge Ramos on Univision say the, the, the path to the presidency goes through the Latino vote? Yet we don't really vote that much. Is this a myth? Is this reality, uh, Rafael? Well, it's, it's, it's the biggest case of uh, chicken and the egg in American politics. So Latinos don't vote, uh, you know. And, and political parties traditionally don't invest in, in Latinos. And this is like historically has been absolutely true. Why would somebody in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas go and vote if they have never in their life received so much as a campaign mailer? And nobody's asking you, like, why? You know, and, and, and they make it difficult on you. So doubly why? And, and, and things don't change for you, like, you know, presidents come and go and things don't change for you. All of that, obviously, has sort of come to a head, partly because of Trump. Uh, you know, Trump, Trump made the Latino vote into a core political issue. So there's that, you know. And, and, and because of what happened in 2016, campaigns have invested more. I, you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to say, like, enough. When is it, when is it ever enough? But they have invested more and a lot more. And and recent polls that I've that I've sort of gone into the into the cross tabs into the Univision poll, the Telemundo poll, and some internal Biden campaign polls. Their poster is very good, but you know you have to take it with a grain of salt because he does work for a campaign. But you do see evidence that the the more engagement by campaigns by super PACs. There's a, there's a big uh, super PAC, Nuestro PAC run by Chuck Rocha, the, the guy who created Bernie Sanders' very successful, wildly successful uh, Hispanic uh, primary primary campaign. I heard something along the lines that Hispanics in particular, when it comes to voting and what they're voting for, are divided into two. The upscale Hispanic, which is a business owner, and then the working class Hispanic, right? And for... The business Hispanic, like if you're, you know, first, second, third generation Hispanic, your your language isn't necessarily tied to your political ties and you want to make money, which is one of the reasons that Mexicans started becoming Republican in the 70s. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and what we started noticing is that they just want to make money and they want to have peace of mind. They want to have economic stability. And so they're willing to vote more for Republicans than for a Democratic Party. But the working class tends to be Democratic because they care about things like health care, 
about racial equity and not being stopped by a cop, you know, and sent to jail or deported or being hunted down by ICE. I mean, um, you've recently wrote um, an article about the Hispanic caucus demanding ICE to suspend expedited removals. I mean, that is a very core issue, I think, with Latinos. What I haven't heard from you, though, is immigration. What happened to immigration in the last four years? No, and, and that's, that's uh, I mean, that's almost by design that immigration is, a, is a sort of the last thing you touch on. So the division you're making, sort of the economic division that you're making and determining people's vote, that's one. There's a religious one. You know, there, there is a very strong religious component. There's traditional Catholics. And then there's, there's within the religious component, there's a traditional Catholics. And, and then the evangelicals in, in Hispanic life have, have become a very significant group. Uh, there's the where you live, the geographical distribution, the the place of origin. There's a, there's a lot of factors. I, th- I think you could probably guess uh, a Hispanic Americans vote by sort of checking off like it's probably like ten boxes, uh, and you'll guess it within like ninety percent uh, accuracy. So so immigration. It, it also is sort of has traditionally been sort of an on on off switch, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's not the top issue because it doesn't affect your daily life as much as say you know having a coal plant right outside your house, <laughs> or 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 your school is falling apart, or you don't have a place to go treated if you to get treated if you break an arm, you know, uh, like those things are are top of mind. So immigration falls down, but it, it's an on off because a a politician who is very ag- aggressively trying to stop immigration from Latin America is traditionally seen by a lot of people in the community. This is not, you know, not 100 percent, but a lot of people as somebody who doesn't, you know, like us. Um, and and that's that's sort of what Trump right now and, and Trump is really trying to appeal to Latinos for the first time in his career, really. Uh, it, he's he's having to get over the things he said four years ago and onwards. And well, his whole before. his whole argument though is small business. He's been going yeah, in all yeah, these rallies and he's been talking about the small business, but it plays well in Florida, right? But it doesn't play so well like in Nevada. So that's that's exactly right. It's completely geographical. It's this is targeted to, toward South Florida because even Central Florida, it's well, it remains to be seen how it plays, but it doesn't look like the Puerto Ricans in Central Florida are are, are buying it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, plays a little bit better in Texas. You know, Texas is is more uh, sort of an open business place, and 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 then as you move west and as you move north, it plays less and less. I mean, he's he's definitely the there's no reason for him to try to make an appeal to California Hispanics, although you know there's a, there's at least one house seat in Orange County that that does depend on on that same uh, campaign pitch, and the economic argument, frankly, has convinced some people it, that it, is it that many? No, I think it's the same ones that were susceptible to be convinced by that economic argument, and let's never forget. I mean. George W. Bush for his reelection, he got, according to exit polls, it might have been a bit less in reality. Forty-four percent. That forty, you know, everybody repeats a forty-four percent. It's probably closer to forty. But there's a lot of space for Republicans to work, and they're really, then they're really getting the mid to high twenties. Recently, in a tweet, you said, "I'm pretty bored with the stories of people discovering the twenty-five to thirty percent of Hispanics who vote for Trump." (laughs) 
It's not news, folks, when so many made the same choice in 2016. But, you know, we keep on going all the way back for like 50 years. Uh, Hispanics have been voting Republican 20% until probably Bush when he hit that 44%. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on in Florida with the Cuban fragmentation generationally and Puerto Ricans. Well, I mean, first of all, like the the absolute tragedy of of Puerto Rico and and how its um, its status really, and this is now broad, pretty much broadly agreed upon, its status has created a situation where economic growth and and you know prosperity is impossible for you know, it's a diminishing population because they're all moving to Florida, but but it's more than 3 million Americans. It's just it's more than 3 million American citizens who have no represent, no voting representation in Congress are, are sort of stuck in what's now broadly agreed to be a colonial structure that is economically punitive. So and they can't the vote. Own, they, they, I mean, they, they can vote. They, they have, of course, like a represent, non-voting representative in Congress, and you know Jennifer Gonzalez Colon, who's who's a Republican, but she's been very active and has been lauded. I mean, obviously, her political opponents don't laud her about anything. It's it's a very aggressive political atmosphere right now. But she's been lauded for for being able to bring in a lot of federal grants to Puerto Rico. So, like. Just quickly, like their healthcare system, where states get sort of are are automatically put into the Medicare and Medicaid uh, budget depending on their size and need and a bunch of different um, factors. Puerto Rico has to act, ask for a grant every like periodically. Has to say like, okay, if I were a state, I would be receiving this much. Pretty please, with sugar on top, Congress, send me this money. And you know, every time that's coming due. Puerto Rico's like on the edge of the, their seat. Like, if this goes away, we won't have a healthcare system. It never, it's never gone away. But this is not a way to plan long term, especially for their aging population. So what's happened? The non-aging population, a lot of people have just moved to Florida the same way they moved to Illinois and New York in the in the fifties and sixties. You know, you know, a, a lot of those people are voting based on on attitudes toward Puerto Rico. Um, Trump's rhetorical attitude has changed a lot, but it's a very, again, he, he, he sort of started, he started, you know, three touchdowns behind because he, he started with, uh, you know, throwing paper towels at people. He says, it, it, you know, the people have applauded him for that and they realized it was playful. But generally, you know, I mean, we, we can objectively say it wasn't well received. Uh, by a majority of, of of observers, Biden, on the other hand, he was sort of starting at a well. You know, nobody really knows what he thinks. Uh, we know he supported the idea of statehood before a deeply divisive issue in Puerto Rico, but it seems like a majority supports statehood. Um, it, it's pretty clear that a majority of the people who've moved to Florida support statehood. Uh, you know, it's it's obviously not the the. Puerto Rican nationalists moving to Florida and exercising their rights as a, as human as 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 American as American citizens. Um, so, so that I think that is one big factor, and that that has changed the political landscape in Florida aggressively over the past five to ten years. 
um, they they were on the losing end in Florida. The Republicans have been incredibly effective at building not only building a winning coalition statewide, but in, in building campaigns that appeal to Latinos. The younger Cubans are sort of becoming a lot. They're becoming a lot more liberal on a lot of social issues, uh, and 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 even on some economic issues, frankly. And they're not quite as tied to the anger over the Cuban Revolution and and the way their you know grandparents yeah, were. Yeah, but why would they? To, they didn't experience it. You know, right, it's not and they tender. Heard their grandparents' stories and whatever, and you know. It, they're not they're not fans of Fidel Castro. I mean, I, I would I would certainly hope that nobody's an actual fan of a you know a murderous dictator. So yeah, there are some changes, but it, like it, still, Republicans have a better hold on how you campaign in Florida than Democrats, and that's that's been very that was very clear in sixteen, and that was very clear in eighteen when you know when when Republicans won the governorship and the Senate seat. Speaking of blue, will Texas flip this year? <laughs> You know, Texans, Texans used to hate that, that question. And, and I mean, in my experience, and now they're kind of leaning into it. Um, I've so been hearing so many reports. I've been seeing so many graphics on cable news. Texas is it's, flipping this year and it has to do because of the Hispanic vote. How true is that? I mean, I wouldn't hold my breath, but it's definitely closer than ever. It's definitely a battleground state. What do you attribute uh, that it, to? To the idea that it could flip this year more than any other year before? So the two factors are certainly the Hispanic vote. And, and, and it's not the Hispanic vote changing, per se. It's the Hispanic extra participation. People who were never engaged in politics who now are engaged in politics. And that's that's the number the number that I really want to see, the sort, sort of... Uh, that, that nobody's really paying attention to that much. In 2018, you had like uh, Hidalgo County is my, my favorite statistic. The, three times as many people voted in Hidalgo County in 2018 than in 2014. And you'd say, so what? Well, so what? Hidalgo County is 90 something percent Hispanic. It's, you know, it's not the richest county in Texas by a long shot. It's in the Rio Grande Valley. It's, it's where you see if, if, if investment, campaign investment in reaching Latinos is paying off or not. And of course, 2018 and 2014 were midterm elections. So great participation in 2018 still doesn't compare to a presidential. So that's why I'm like sort of excited to see like, okay, what happens in 2020? Like what happens with a district like that, with a county like that in 2020? Or is everybody just going like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe participating does change something. Um, you know, let's let's go and try this. Or or, you know, are we still in the building process of Latino participation? And, you know, this election will answer a lot of that. The other factor that you cannot discount and might actually even have a bigger effect overall. I don't think it's a bigger effect in representation, but in number of votes, it might uh, is is people who have moved to Texas from other states. Mm-hmm. So, and, and usually those tend to be white suburban uh, liberals from other, from other states because Texas, frankly, has built a lot of economic opportunity and, and they are changing the state. There's, I, I was looking at, at the numbers of the Secretary of State of Texas. Eligible voters in, in 2016, I think there were about 19 million, you know, 
plus minus 300,000. I, I don't remember the exact number. This year, there's like 20.5 million. So a growth of up to 1.5 million over four years in eligible voters. That's not, not just population across the state. So, I mean, Texas is a lot bigger now, <laughs> which, which Texans love to talk about how big their state is. So, you know, they'll, <laughs> they'll appreciate that. Uh, but, but it's a more diverse voting community all around and it's a more participative voting community among Latinos. You were talking about uh, the the campaigns trying to reach out to Hispanics a little bit more, but sort of confounded by their complexity. Uh, I also heard that I think Bloomberg was helping Biden buy more ads in Spanish language TV or a bulk of Biden's campaign ad was going to Univision and Telemundo and other Latinx are like, what are you talking about? Why are you putting your money there? You know, most Hispanics in this country don't even speak Spanish as much as they used to anymore. They're more heavily inclined to speak English. You should be reaching them. Um, you had written an article around uh, the Trump-Biden deliver competing pre-debate messages to Hispanics on Telemundo, but I don't remember either of them going to Telemundo or Univision to do a Hispanic debate, which Obama did, I think, in his two terms that he was there. Yeah. Did that happen? Did I miss that? Or did they just <laughs> never even plan to reach Hispanics through TV? I mean, I, I, I think a, a Hispanic debate was was definitely out of reach for this campaign for many reasons, including coronavirus and and that you know I, everyone's I been doing it, Rafael. CBS, yeah, but, NBC, but, I think did it like two or three times. People have been doing it. You could have done something virtual at least to get the Latino impressions, not to send in a tape so that like, pre coverage to the debate they could you know air a couple of. I mean, I, I just I, I can't believe. Oh, that. I mean. I mean, don't get me wrong. I I, I want this to happen. I, I I would be I I would be glued to the TV. I would I mean I wouldn't uncut the cord, but I would find a way to watch it. You know, um, but I can't imagine what the negotiation between the two campaigns in this you know in this election on on that issue would be like. I I, I just I just don't see them agreeing on that because I mean debates, frankly, like it's 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 a miracle they happen. With with such a divided political, uh, I mean, this, Biden this is, could have had a town hall. We had two instead of three, right? I feel like Biden could have had a town hall because if he can't even <laughs> articulate the Hispanic plan for his presidency, that would have been a good moment to kind of shape it and articulate it. You know, funny enough, I I have to push back on that. I think both candidates have been more effective in articulating a Hispanic plan this year than ever before. Not because they're, you know, not be, because they, they, they like Hispanics more or less or whatever. It's just because it's more necessary because Arizona and Texas and Colorado are, are, are battleground. Colorado, not so much anymore, but seem to be battleground states and Nevada as well uh, because Hispanic communities in North Carolina and Pennsylvania and Michigan might make a difference in a close election. So they were forced to, and, and this is, I mean, this is look at, look at it as the value of what is the value of Hispanic political representation. It's in 2016, Trump centered his campaign on immigration and a very aggressive rhetoric against immigrants from Latin America specifically against immigrants from Mexico and Central America, even more so. This year, you don't really hear it much. I mean, we just had a, a press call that essentially generated no news with, with uh, Trump advisor Stephen Miller, the architect of a lot of these 
you know, he's, he's not well liked by the community because of his, his very, very aggressive positions on immigration. And it was on immigration in his role as a campaign advisor on the record. It was very strange. This doesn't happen often. And he spent most of his time talking about how, you know, the refugee system would allegedly allow terrorists into the country and, and talking about immigration from beyond Latin America, which is he, he did discuss, a li- you know, to, to an extent, immigration from Latin America. But but, you know, when 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 the politics of an issue are facing are forcing somebody like Stephen Miller to change his rhetoric, to avoid stepping too much on criticizing Latin America, you know that representation is working right. to an extent. I mean, it's it's not ideal. You know, there's the, you, you, people shouldn't be criticizing and the, the, like the, the, the history and, and the ethnicity of an entire continent that, that shouldn't be happening at all. But but representation is providing some sort of protection to to avoid that. Finally, whatever happens, whoever becomes the president in on November 3rd or a couple of weeks after November 3rd. <laughs> Talk is at some point going to be when are we going to have the first elected Hispanic president in the United States of America? I mean, I know we're still going to talk about the first female one, but there seems to be a lot of talk that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez could be that president to fill in both, you know, uh, criterias, female and Hispanic. What have you been hearing about her wanting to run because she's a superstar. She's, I think she just came out on the cover for December Vanity Fair's December issue. She seems to be someone that the mainstream loves to talk about. Republicans love to hate her uh, and also <laughs> talk about her. Um, and she seems to be the type of person that can activate a demographic more than anyone else, at least the Hispanic one and other ones as well. What have you been hearing about AOC becoming president of the United States in the next 10 years? Well, I mean, there's there's people who absolutely want that to happen, and I, I mean, the, the 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 core thing about her is she's an incredibly talented politician. Like, it just, I mean, it's it's just obvious. Uh, she's also, and and this is something that I, I appreciate of her personally, and 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 she shares with a lot of uh, other politicians uh, on both sides of the aisle. But but it's clear with her, she's very she tries to answer reporters' questions. Um, she's, she, you know, you can agree with her or disagree with her, but she's, she makes an attempt to be transparent. Uh, she didn't so much at first, but you know, it was, she was under a lot of pressure and and it was a, an interesting learning experience to watch for her. I mean, but the first thing I would say is that she's very young, right? So she has, she could have a very long political, yeah, I think she might've just turned 30, but around there. So she, she, I think I think she might be eligible age-wise by 2024, but uh, I, I don't see that happening. I don't, I don't see her as a Democratic nominee in 2024. You know, she might prove me wrong, but, but it, it, I don't think that's, that's her path, you know, becoming president before the age of 40 or, or that much before the age of 40. You know? or the, um, I think also there are other progressives 
that that you know you got to keep an eye out on i mean it, just in new york new york latinos uh it looks uh, richie torres is about to get elected to congress he's he's probably as liberal as progressive i mean um he's the first gay afro latino to to be go to Congress. Uh, oh, wow. and, and one difference, and the reason I bring him up is he's, you know, also a progressive icon from New York, uh, has a lot of, you know, is, he's also going to be a, a well-known national name, I believe. Um, but he's participating within the sort of establishment Congressional Hispanic Caucus structures of campaigning, the, the bold pack, which which is a uh, it's the campaign arm for the caucus um aoc is the one member of the hispanic caucus that's not in bold pack so that's it like she 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 hasn't made enemies with them she's she's a very good she's very good at, at disagreeing with someone and not becoming their enemy which is what i said very it's talented key. Politician. it's super key man that's what that we're is, looking I for mean, now that's, that's what we're hoping with biden but she has made enemies, you know, because sometimes her her positions are so so radical, different, yeah. so radical. So I we'll see, like with with her sort of reinventing the wheel, get her move her up faster than somebody who's who's trying to improve the wheel, like you know, like a ton of other members of of the CHC, including soon to be Richie. Uh, I don't know, you know, that's, and, and, and that's sort of what's fun about my job. We, we get to say, you know, grab your popcorn and watch and tell everybody what's going on. <laughs> that's absolutely it. Well, Rafael Bernal, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you being here and giving us your insights and wisdom on what's going on with the Hispanic vote. Where are you going to be November 3rd? <laughs> I am going to be working from home like I have been pretty much since March, uh, you know, following the election. Uh, me a phone and a computer and I might even <laughs> turn on the TV for this one well if you want to reach uh, Rafael Bernal on Twitter he's at Rafael underscore Bernal underscore and once again man thank you so much for being on the show hey it was great hey, thank you for having me And before I wrap up here, just wanted to share that our Felipe Esparza episode made it into Spotify's Latin XN Proud playlist. Yes, I am a happy daddy. Uh, thank you, listeners, for sharing. And if you haven't heard it, you can check out the episode there. And while you're there, check out these three Latin tracks you might want to add to your playlist this Halloween weekend. <laughs> Seven Eleven, Reina. No sé cómo te lo puedo explicar. Quiero estar sola. Mejor quiero que estés acá. Siento un vacío que tal vez me pueda llenar. Días de paja, Clara Cava. Iguanas, Boca Paila. Cuando quieras regresar a este lugar, nada será igual. Nada será igual. 
And that's it for episode 143 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'd like to thank Rafael Bernal for coming on the show. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on our iTunes page. Also, check out our brand new Halloween episode on our Brown and Black podcast with me and Mike Sargent. You can listen to it on all podcast platforms. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>